So what is faith? What, what is faith? Is it accepting some theological propositions as correct? An intellectual or maybe even emotional exercise that we can participate in that may bring us to accept certain theological positions? Or is it something else? Is it something else? In our text today, this wonderful, amazing story that we've all heard many times, maybe, I think Jesus reveals that faith is something else. Beneath all the drama of this incredible scene, there is a very purposeful teaching by Christ on what faith is, on what trust in God might really mean. And I want to make a quick side note before we jump into the story, because I want to be sure I'm not misunderstood this morning. There's two ways that I don't want to be misunderstood. Number one is we're going to see that Martha is the main character, and she's really struggling with what real faith is. I'm not making a distinction between faith and doubt this morning, nor is Jesus. Doubt is part of faith. Okay, that's not the direction this is going, so please don't hear that. That's not what I'm saying. Martha's, Martha's issue, as we're going to see, and, and the issue that I think Jesus is teaching on, is theological knowledge, if it doesn't lead to trust in God, might not be consistent with what faith means in the biblical narrative. Okay, so that's where I'm going. Doubt, however, is a big part of faith. That's where honesty comes in. Okay, so that's the one thing I want to make sure everyone hears. And the other thing I want to be sure I'm clear about today, because it might not be clear, so I just want to make sure I'm not misunderstood, is I'm not belittling the importance of theological knowledge. I'm not diminishing that or disparaging that. There is a reason for orthodoxy. Orthodoxy means correct opinion about theology. I'm not disparaging that. Again, it's important. What I'm saying, however, if that's all we have, without deep trust, deep relational trust, then again, I'm not convinced that's what we need. And at a time like this in our country, for those of us who, you know, are, are following it, <laughs> there are a lot of people calling themselves Christians right now that seems to have nothing to do with Jesus Christ. And even major leaders within Christianity are now fighting over this whole idea in this country. Theological knowledge alone, without deep relational trust in Jesus Christ, causes that. Because there are always different opinions on what theological knowledge means and says. So I think it's very important that we dive into this subject now. So I hope that, so I hope that will help us not to misunderstand some of the things that I'm saying this morning. So, the story begins with somewhere, with Jesus sort of hiding somewhere beyond the Jordan River. Okay, he's sort of been hiding, he almost got killed, so he escaped their grasp, and he went back, and he was there. And he receives word that Lazarus has fallen very ill. Lord, the one you love, is sick. So he receives that word, and then he sets the stage for the teaching. This is, this is the setting of the stage. He says, listen, the sickness will not end in death. Notice for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Okay, so we set the stage that this is going to be a teaching moment. And he's going to be teaching them through this entire dramatic scene. He hangs around for two more days. And then he tells the disciples, okay, it's time we need to go back to Bethany. And of course, the disciples reject this idea. A short while ago, they tried to kill you, and you're going back there. So, of course, they're like, no, we're not going to back there. 
most of them are still having trouble coming to terms with the Messiah that dies. At this point in, in their relationship with Jesus Christ, he's the Messiah that's come to overthrow Rome, not this Messiah that's going to die and save the whole world. So Jesus has to explain, listen, Lazarus isn't sick, he's actually quite dead, and now we need to go. Okay? And then he prepares them for this extended and important teaching on faith that this story is. He says, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. Alright? So this entire dramatic scene is so Jesus can teach them about faith. And then we have a statement that is classic John. You know, you've heard me say, I love John, I, he's my favorite writer. This is one of those reasons. He throws this detail into the story. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. This is a spectacular confession of faith, of real faith, even if maybe Thomas doesn't even understand it yet. In a paraphrase, Thomas is saying, it doesn't make sense to us that Jesus is going to get himself killed, but if that is really what he is doing, then as followers of him, we should go too. Spectacular. This echoes one of the most authentic and ancient of all confessions of faith, when Job said, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Think of that. That is the definition of trust. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. This is another reason why John is my favorite writer. You know, we spent time in, in Corinthians, well, we actually spent a lot of time, three years. But in St. Paul, no doubt when it comes to composition and rhetoric is unmatched, I think, in, in all, of, all of writing. I don't even think Shakespeare could match St. Paul. But for me, John tells the story. And this is one of those incredible moments. This detail he includes here is magnificent. It's subtle commentary to help us understand what this story is all about. Because it's easy for this story being so dramatic, the details of it, the purpose of it, to get lost. You know, he's raising Lazarus from the dead. So John was the last one that wrote, and he wrote years and years and years and years and years after the events. And for those years and years, John was preaching. And teaching. He spent a lot of time in the church of Ephesus. And you can just, when you read the Gospel of John, which is the last bit of writing that, that made it into the canon, it's magnificent and it's filled with these moments of insight to help us better understand the story. And you can, it's, that's why I love John so much. I read John, you can hear when he breaks into a sermon or he's pulling out one of his old sermons and he throws in details that he's learned over the years to help people understand what he's talking about. So this is this magnificent story he's about to remind us of, and right in he puts this detail. Listen, Thomas has deep relational trust. Deep relational trust. No theological foundation can get you to this place. Theological foundation alone can get you to this place where he says, listen, if we're going to get killed, we're going to get killed. Let's just go because we love it. That is trust. That is faith. And this stands in sharp contrast to the protagonist in the story, Martha who has a tra transactional knowledge, but something less than faith. So, Jesus arrives, and bet, deep relational trust, faith, right there. So Jesus arrives, transacts something less, transactional knowledge, good, I missed those two slides, I should have been putting them up when I was talking. Okay. So here we go. So Jesus arrives in Bethany, 
And Martha comes to meet him, and here's where the teaching begins. And to Ernest, in the dialogue with Martha throughout this story. And it begins with this telling exchange. Lord, Martha said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So Jesus first gets Martha to reveal her theological knowledge. Her acceptance of theological propositions that she has obviously been taught and she has obviously learned her lessons very well. I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. The Pharisees, which by the way is not an always a negative term, they were the back to the Bible people of Jesus' time, believe it or not. Uh, they taught general resurrection. The Sadducees did not believe in resurrection at all. So she was obviously being taught by the Pharisees. She learned her lesson well. <coughs> Sounds like one of us, doesn't it? Us good Christians, we love to quote scripture because we know it. We love to quote our teachers, our books, and we are quite confident in knowing the truth. And we're good at pointing out everyone else who doesn't know the truth. So I want to make a comment on the truth. Jesus is true. Jesus is true. So, I'm going to let Michael Card talk for me, because he does it much better than I. So, here, here's Martha's great theological knowledge, right? Okay, so, in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came to the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, Michael Card says it a lot better than me. This is very, very important. Jesus is full of grace and truth, but not truth as anyone in the history of humankind has ever known not truth as right answer or correct words, but a person, living, breathing, and eventually bleeding and dying. Truth that one comes to know personally in the context of a life, not between the pages of a textbook. From this moment on, knowing the truth will not necessarily mean being right, but that rather being faithful. Knowing the truth will no longer mean knowing the answers, but only knowing Jesus Christ. I love that. And in this seminal moment of this story that we're looking at this morning is proof of what Michael Carr just said. That truth is a person, not correct answers or right words. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Jesus is not so interested in what Martha knows. He is interested in what Martha believes. And there is a big difference. See, in all her knowledge, it has not led to any deep relational trust. Notice something very interesting here. Here's the question. Do you believe this? I am the, resur I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me. There's the question. Note her answer. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. She doesn't answer the question, does she? She just states another theological proposition. How much are we prone to do this? State the facts. Oh, we know it. We know it. But do we trust Him? Are we in deep relational trust with God? Now, this is an important theological proposition. Maybe the most important one of all. You are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. But she's still far from trust in Jesus. Contrast her 
theological knowledge with Thomas's deep trust. I will go with you, Jesus, no matter what. Now, Martha's defense, she struggles with faith for the same reason so many of us struggle with faith. Pain. Suffering. Sadness. Sorrow. It's the thing that keeps us all from trust. It's the thing that keeps us holding on to being right instead of just trusting God. She can't wrap her head around how Lazarus could die if Jesus really is the Messiah. And this exposes the big difference between Martha's understanding of what it means to be the Messiah and Jesus' understanding. Martha wants a God who makes her life wonderful and changes the circumstances of her world with a very human kind of power. However, Jesus shows up and says, well, I love you and I want you to love me back because that kind of relationship will make your life wonderful in the midst of your circumstances. But as far as my power goes, it looks like that. This does change the world, but maybe not the way you imagine it, though. And until the end of your world comes, Martha, only faith can see the change that is happening in and all around you. So trust in me. Have faith in me. Resurrection comes. Love wins. Life is the final reality. Believe this. Jesus wants Martha to trust him and not to have faith in her own theological knowledge. Martha's own knowledge of truths, which include what may be the biggest truth of all, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is a one-time acceptance of a proposition as fact. But it's not an ongoing decision to believe that informs her life, that moves her to trust. And if that's the case with us, then perhaps our faith is something less than the biblical narrative. In certain circles of Christianity, salvation is often presented as a very black and white, simple, three-step process that seems solely to do with accepting certain theological facts. About one's condition, about who Jesus is, and has very little to do with ongoing, fluid relationships. And even as you move forward in that type of Christianity, and I think we've all been there because it's easier, it seems to be more about accepting more and more theological propositions than it is about loving God and loving others. Do you find that when you're talking, maybe in your own life? I was there for many, many years, and I still slide back there because it's easy. So, I've been thinking about it. I wonder if one result of this kind of Christianity where it's about transactional knowledge and not about deep relationship with God, I wonder if that's, that one result of that is the way that the communion and the Eucharist, or Lord's Supper, whatever you call it, has gone missing from so many churches. I wonder if that's why. Because see, this, like I said at communion, this isn't a propositional fact. This isn't theological knowledge. This is deep trusting relationship this table. To come to this table is to be thankful on a consistent basis. It speaks of relationship. And if you only need transactional knowledge, you don't need this moment of pure relationship that God told us to be part of. 
So I just wonder, I was just thinking about that this week. I said, oh, I wonder if that's it. We've slid so much into just knowing the right facts and so away from deep trust and relationship, it makes this table easy to go away. This moment, when we're not doing it out of habit, but doing it purposefully and authentically, is a moment of thanking God and confessing we trust He loves us. We trust He died for us, regardless of what's going on in our lives. This is such a beautiful moment. And this is where Martha, Jesus wants Martha. Okay? And so when Jesus finally gets to the tomb, and He tells people to remove the stone, here's Martha's full revelation of the divide between her knowledge and her trust. But Lord, by this time there's a bad odor for he's been there for four days. And this is exactly when Jesus begins to bring his teaching to a powerful, powerful conclusion. He says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? You see, it's not trusting that we get it correct. It's trusting that God gets it correct. It's not trusting that we get it correct. It's trusting that God gets it correct. Trusting that He is resurrection. This is why, I, you know, if it was about us getting it correct, I wouldn't do this. I would be terrified to do it. That's why I'm never bothered when people tell me you're wrong. Okay, there's a point of being a pastor, I'm not here to be right. I'm here to help us and me find deep relational trust in who is right. Jesus Christ. And if I get it wrong sometimes, I get it wrong sometimes. And any pastor that says they get it right 100% of the time, I think they're in the wrong profession as well. I trust God gets it right. Trusting that from the very beginning of the world, He was not only slain for us, but He rose for us. So Jonathan Shipman wrote to me a brilliant critique of popular Christianity. Here's what Jonathan said. He said, where is the faith in the power of the resurrection? Where is the understanding that it was done from the foundation of the world and that evil had lost from the beginning? This is powerful. There's not a Christian in the world that won't tell you they theologically believe Jesus rose from the dead. Where's the trust in that? And this is more poignant when you realize it comes from a man who lives with the terminal illness. Point. Evil has lost from the beginning. Death has been vanquished before death even happened. This is why God made seeds on the third day. In order for seeds to work, they die. So much for that theological knowledge that says death came in the fall. No. Jesus died before the foundations of the world and rose again so God could make seeds because that death is not death. It's the beginning of life. This is trust. Trust. Christ came to reveal to us this mystery that God loves us and in His resurrection we live. No matter what kind of pain, suffering, or death we endure. It is only temporary. Life is eternal. That's good news, isn't it? I think. We're entering into the Easter season. It's good news. 
Last week we talked about how and why the focus on circumstances is a lie. And I'm going to repeat myself, but I was thinking more about it this week. And this hit me. You know, you know when you're really in love with someone, or your kids, or someone in your family, and you always talk about things like, oh, I don't need a gift. Just, just love me. You know, these kind of conversations, money can't buy us love, all that kind of stuff. You know, when you, you know, some of you are shaking your heads and smiling, so obviously, you know, you know what I mean? It's okay. But I was thinking, well, how come we capture that great mystery with each other sometimes, but when it comes to God, we often think our circumstances are somehow evidence of God's love or lack of And we even teach that to each other, don't we? Oh, that must be happening because you're a saint. Well, that must be happening because you're a wonderful saint. Don't get me wrong. But God's love is not transactional. And here's another brilliant part of John. Oh, I loved him so much. Did you notice in chapter verse, very beginning of the story, what it said? John threw this in. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I love that. As Lazarus is dying. God is love. And his love for us is forever. Our circumstances are not indication of love or lack of love. And let me be clear here. Our circumstances, the majority of them I'm talking about, the ones we have no control over, that's what I'm talking about. You know, waking up in the morning perfectly healthy, and by 5 o'clock at night you've been to the doctor and you have stage 4 cancer, that's what I'm talking about. When someone dies in a tragic accident, that's what I'm talking about. When you get sick, I'm not talking about circumstances of our own doing. Many of us have circumstances of our own doing. Good news is, however, God still loves us, even in those circumstances. But part of trusting God is probably following Him out of those circumstances, right? That's another part of what real trust is. See, theological knowledge, man, we can rationalize anything. Let me give an example, because my friend Tito's here this morning. He's been busy the last few months, so I haven't had a chance to do this in a while. Jesus Christ, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who hate you. Well, with theological knowledge, you can pick apart the Bible, and you can find reasons very well to bomb your enemies, and kill them, and build walls, and call yourself a great Christian. Do you see what the whole theological knowledge does? When it is not driving us to deep relational trust. So, trust means when God says, hey, live your life this way, we live our life that way because He trusts us. That's what trust is. God is love. Love wins always. And that is what we are asked to believe. But not as a theological proposition. That we accept and then go on living as though death wins and resurrection is an illusion. That's what Jonathan was referring to. The deepest part of our faith is resurrection wins. But sometimes we, we go on as though no resurrection doesn't win. 
for us to breathe that with the whole being, to hear his words calling out to us from beyond the darkness of this world, come forth. I think my favorite verse in the whole Bible, John again, his epic writing style. In last week's test that we looked at, Jesus asked, what do you want? I think this is exactly what we want. To come forth. To shed the stink of death and the grave clothes that hold us down and live life. To live life. So, if we find it hard to live life into this, live into life, to live into this spectacular mystery of redemption that says we can be in intimate relationship with God, if we find it hard to rise above the horrors of this world, and I know many of us, right in this community, are severely struggling with different horrors right now. If we remain convinced it is all useless, that there is a four-day stench that can never be cleared away, then I gently suggest we start spending time with the God who loves us so much that he would go to hell and back for us. And he will save us exactly because he loves us. If all of our theological knowledge that we tend to put our trust in is not helping us to trust in the only thing we're trusting in, if our theological knowledge is not leading us to deep relational trust in Jesus Christ. Perhaps we should revisit the purpose of that knowledge. Start spending time with the God who does love us. Do you know what Lazarus means? The word Lazarus means the one whom God helps. The gospel in one word. I wish I had been given that name last week. It's the gospel in one word. Lazarus didn't do anything. He had no theological propositions. He had no truths that he was right about. He had no correct answers he could give. He was dead. But when the resurrection showed up outside his tomb, Lazarus came forth. Born again, made new, alive. That is faith in the resurrection. Capital R, Jesus Christ. And that's how it always is. Read the Gospels very closely. Jesus was very clear. When we are least, we are great. When we are last, we are first. When we are lost, we are found. And when we are dead, we are truly alive. Might we have the faith, all of us, to live into this. Thanks be to God. The gentle healer came into our town today. He touched fly the